0: D.L. Moody's ministry was extremely successful and people were coming to Jesus left and right in his day. And there were a few other preachers who were trying to figure out what's the secret sauce of Moody's ministry. What what is he doing that we don't understand? And so they went and visited him. And they were at a hotel from a city that he was speaking at and they they visited him at his hotel. And D.L. Moody says, look out the window and tell me what you see. And so the other three preachers they they make note of the things they see. They say, oh, I see, you know, young men and women walking in the streets. I see businessmen, and I see, you know, architecture and beautiful buildings and and streets and landscape." And they look back and they see D.L. Moody's face, and he's crying, and they're confused. They're like, "What are we missing?" And he says, "What?" They ask him, "What What do you see?" D.L. Moody walks up to the window and he looks out and he says what I see are... Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's Word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of Scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's Word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah is happening near the same time as the last four chapters of Ezra. It's about 14, 15 years later, um, but Ezra is still around, and he's still in Israel doing work. Uh, What you've seen over the last couple of books from Ezra and now Nehemiah is the three returns to Israel from the Jews who were put in captivity. It started with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, They led the first wave of people going back into Israel to rebuild the temple. Uh, You know, they gave up for about 16 years. Haggai, the prophet, comes and motivates them to finish the job. They rebuild the temple. Um, And then about 60 years later, Ezra comes along, has a desire to bring revival to the people of of Jerusalem. And he brings back another wave of people with him to, uh, to Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah has this desire to rebuild the walls of the city. And this is happening about 15 years after Ezra gets started. So that's where we're at. That's the goal of, of Nehemiah. So let's dig right in. All right. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. it came to pass in the month of Kislev on the, in the 20th year, as i was in shushan the citadel that han and i one of my brethren came with men from judah and i asked them concerning the jews who had escaped who had survived the captivity and concerning jerusalem and they said to me the survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach the wall of jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire so what's happened is nehemiah serves in the king's court He's a cupbearer. You'll find that out by the end of this chapter. But a friend of his, who has been to Jerusalem, is near him. And so he asks him the question, how's it going in Jerusalem? And his friend tells him, poorly. It's not good. People are afraid. The walls are completely broken down. Um, They've been burned with fire. It's not good. Everyone there is in great distress. And so verse four picks up Nehemiah's feelings about that. He says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So when he hears this news, he begins fasting and praying and he's upset and concerned for his people. Now here's the best part about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is not in the ministry. He's a layperson. In fact, he has a job in the king's court. He's not like Ezra who was in the priesthood and was a scribe and a rabbi. Nehemiah is kind of a regular, I wouldn't say a regular guy. He's probably pretty wealthy being right-hand man to the king, but he's not in the ministry. He's a layperson and he's so so devastated by what is happening in Jerusalem that his reaction is to fast And pray for the people. And I said, verse 5 Pray, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which uh, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant his mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So we get an introduction into who Nehemiah is. He's the king's cupbearer. He has a friend who lets him know about what's going on in Jerusalem. The city walls have been torn down and burned and broken, and the people are in In distress because they have enemies, and their city needs to be protected. He weeps, and he feels concern. And this is one of the things that I was thinking about when I read this, and when I was preparing for this. Right, he has this heart for these people, and he fasts and prays. And now he's praying on behalf of the people in Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. He hasn't he's he's never even been to Jerusalem. He was born under Babylonian captivity, but his heart because of his love of God is with the city of Jerusalem and the people there. And he prays and he confesses on their behalf and he seeks to be to minister to these people even from afar. And it reminds me of this story. There were a, f- a few different preachers in the same area as D.L. Moody and D.L. Moody's ministry was extremely successful and people were coming to Jesus left and right in his day and there were a few other preachers who were trying to figure out what's the secret sauce of Moody's ministry what what is he doing that we don't understand and so they went and visited him and they were at a hotel that, from a city that he was speaking at and they, they visited him at his hotel and D.L. Moody says look out the window and tell me what you see. And so the other three preachers, they, they make note of the things they see. They say, oh, I see, you know, young men and women walking in the streets. I see businessmen, and I see, you know, architecture and beautiful buildings and, and streets and landscape. And they look back, and they see D.L. Moody's face, and he's crying. And they're confused. They're like, what are we missing? And he says, what, they ask him, what, what do you see? D.L. Moody walks up to the window and he looks out and he says, what I see are thousands of people who are going to hell because they, don't, they haven't responded to the gospel. And that's the difference. His eyes were focused on the true need of the people, not on what they like about the city. And that was the secret sauce of his ministry. And Nehemiah, similarly, has this heart that just breaks for the people in Jerusalem. So we'll pick up in chapter two. It said, "It it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king." Now, because it tells us what month it is, we know that it's about four months later. So Nehemiah has been having this thing build in his heart for four months, and it's been bothering him. He's been praying about it. It's been bugging him. And it says, now I had never been sad in, the pre- in, in his presence before. He's never been sad in the presence of the king before. Even for these four months that he's been praying about what's been going on in Jerusalem. But today he's sad before King Artaxerxes. And therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Well, here's the thing. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king. He's really close to the king. He's so close that his job is literally to taste the food and the wine before the king does, so that if Nehemiah dies, the king knows not to eat it. And so nobody cares for the king as much as Nehemiah, because his life is also on the line. And he looks sad before the king, and this is not allowed. You're not allowed to be... You're not allowed to influence the king negatively in his presence, or you could die. But he he can't hide it. The distress in his heart for the people of Jerusalem is too heavy. And when the king sees it, he probably didn't even know he had a sad look on his face. But when the king sees it and mentions it, he becomes afraid because of the ramifications of what could happen to him. But as you'll see, Nehemiah's relationship that he's built with the king has been pretty good because of the witness that he had. I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever, which is a good thing to say when you don't want to die. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and his gates are burned with fire? So he lays it out there. He doesn't hide. He doesn't beat around the bush. Just says, look, king, Jerusalem is destroyed. How can I not be sad? This is where the place where my ancestors are buried. And so the king says to him, uh, what do you request? Well, that's, that's a big question. The king of the world, practically, at this time, King Artaxerxes, ruler of Persia, says, what do you want? That's like an open door to get whatever you want. And he doesn't say Ferrari because they don't exist. <laughs> He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So first, his first response is, before I talk, pray. That's a good principle. Before I respond, let me get on the same page as God. So before he speaks, he prays. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. But what an interesting request. A guy whose entire job is to eat food and drink wine so that the king doesn't die, now wants to be a contractor. Um, But the king asked him what he wanted, so he's going to get it. The king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now, Nehemiah ended up being gone for 12 years. So I don't know if he told him that up front, if he knew that that was going to be the deal. But he ended up being gone for 12 years, which is quite a long time to give up the person you trust with your life. So verse 7, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now, pause. What just happened is a really big deal. In Daniel chapter 9, you find out that an angel tells Daniel, about some events that are going to take place, one of which is that, now Daniel's in Babylon, the temple's been destroyed, but God is telling him that in the future, the walls and the streets of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and when that decree happens, there's now a ticking time clock, and it's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in Daniel 24 through 27, it points out that there will be 69 seven-year periods between this moment and when the Messiah makes reconciliation for sin. And he's cut off before the people. So that's 483 years after this event where the walls are decreed to be rebuilt. Well, Artaxerxes, nearly 100 years after Daniel makes this prophecy, about 80 years, has prophesied this. King Artaxerxes writes a decree for Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And this is March 14th, 445 B.C. And it turns out 483 biblical calendar years later is April 6, 32 A.D., which happens to be the day that some disciples got a donkey on the Mount of Olives for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on, where he's chosen as the lamb to be sacrificed on Passover. So this is a big event. This is prophecy literally being fulfilled by King Artaxerxes without his knowledge of even knowing that he's doing it. Or likely even Nehemiah knowing that this is what is happening. Verse nine. Then I went to the governor in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah... The Ammonite uh, official heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So Nehemiah shows up. He's got these letters, and now there's now there's these guys Sanbalat and Tobiah, uh, and you'll eventually see another guy, I think named uh, Gemer, or gisham sorry, and uh, they don't like that Nehemiah is here to help the people of Israel because they're enemies. Of the people. But those are the letters. Letters that fulfill prophecy have been given out. Now, here's the other note, notable thing Nehemiah gets armies and horsemen to go with him and to help protect the people. Now, if you read just a book prior, you find out that Ezra did not do this. Ezra, when it came to the king that he was working with, King Xerxes, He decides he doesn't need the armies and the captains to help protect him. He tells the king that God will protect them on his mission. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Well, neither of them are wrong. The point is, it's okay to do what God has given you to do. (laughs) And God's not necessarily going to work the same way through each person. Even though God has the same goal, he might not work the same way through each individual. Uh, So, there's no negative thing about this. This is a good thing that Nehemiah did. And it was a good thing that Ezra did. They chose to do what God had led them to do. That's a good thing. So, verse 11, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Uh, Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me, except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well, And the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials or others who did the work. Then I said to them, you are... You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. So what happens is Nehemiah, as he gets to the city, he doesn't say anything to anybody. He stops and observes the damage first. And he does it secretly. He does it at night without telling anybody what he's doing. And he goes and he looks around the whole city of Jerusalem, sees how bad, bad it is and assesses the damage so that he knows what task lies ahead. Now that is something that a lot of Christian ministries could learn from. You can assess the task at hand that needs to be done. You might have a better battle plan of what needs to be done. Sometimes we just go off of spiritual fervor and passion and desire and think that that's enough without having a legitimate plan. Nehemiah shows us something else. He actually has a plan of attack because he assesses the damage and the goal before he goes to business doing it. God doesn't dislike someone who has good administrative planning and who understands how to delegate tasks. That's not a bad thing. In fact, we even find in Exodus that Jethro tells the same thing to Moses. He tells him to stop taking all of the cases and learn how to delegate to the people and appoint people underneath him to be spiritual leaders beneath him, so he's not doing all of the work himself. So Nehemiah is looking around at the wall and finding out how bad it is, and then he approaches the people and says, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which has been so good upon me, and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But then Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gisham, the Arab, heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Now, this isn't new. This isn't a strange tactic. This happens all the time. When someone is doing what God has called them to do, there are bound to be people who, in, who will insult them. At least in Nehemiah's position, while they were in the city of Jerusalem, they weren't Israelites. They weren't people on his same team telling him what to do, but that does happen within the church. When someone is doing what they are called to do, why are there always people? Why is there always a at Tobiah, and Geshem among us who always have a list of how you could be doing things differently when you're doing what God has called you to do? It's it's a tool of the enemy, and he uses it well. Uh, But it doesn't affect Nehemiah here. Nehemiah does this. He answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So his response is, God's on my side. So what do you really have to say? And he just keeps going. And you're going to see how this plays out and how these guys really use the tools of the enemy against Nehemiah. So in chapter 3, it starts out like this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And now the rest of this chapter is really a list of people and who was building next to them. But I wanted to point out the beginning because Eliashib, the high priest. So in, in Jerusalem, there's no higher authority to the Jews than the high priest because their governors are now foreigners. So the people that they look to most for leadership is the high priest. And he didn't see himself as too valuable to get in on the work, to get his hands dirty as well. That's a good leadership tool, and that's a good thing to know. Now, the rest of this chapter is literally just who is working next to whom. So we'll skip over to chapter four. I'm not saying don't read it, read it. um, But for time's sake, as we try to get through seven chapters, we're going to go to chapter four. But so it happened. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. So here come the insults again. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And so his tactic starts out like this. We're going to despise the Jews. We're going to ridicule them. We're going to create a bad picture of who these people are culturally. That's the first step. If you get culture to despise a group of people or to dehumanize a group of people, the next step is violence is tolerated because you've made them some human. That's what you're going to see here. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And so he's saying he's already calling for the violence. In an indirect way, that whatever they build, no matter what it is, I'll break it down. Here, O our God, for we are despised, turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So that's Nehemiah's prayer in response to this. And he tells God that they're despised by these people. And he says, give them up as plunder. Don't cover up their iniquity. Make them feel convicted for, for what they're doing. Don't let their sin be blotted out before you. And it seems kind of harsh what he's saying, but it's not unbiblical. I mean, Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out into the cities to minister and to cast out demons, That if someone doesn't accept you to dust the feet off your sandals, and go away. (laughs) He said, don't throw pearls before swine, right? If someone is unwilling to accept the teaching or hear the gospel, you don't have to keep trying to feed it down their throat. You've planted the seed. Move on. And so that's what Nehemiah has done. He has given up. He's answered them politely. Now he's not going to answer them politely anymore. He's prayed that God would deal with them. So we built the wall. That's a good sentence following that. What does he do in response? Nothing different. He keeps going about the work. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So what you're seeing is the people were motivated. They started to get things done. They got halfway finished in the midst of all of this stuff being projected at them. Now, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arab And the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Well, there it is. You ridicule them, dehumanize them, you make them less than, and now you start trying to punish them with violence. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So again, Nehemiah says, good planning is a good idea, also prayer. (laughs) So the first thing he does is he prays, and then he sets watch guards up day and night so that you have partners working with you, and there's always someone guarding the work that has been done. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. This is a good example of really life. The people have become discouraged because there's constant opposition to their goal, which is part of doing ministry. The world does not want the gospel to spread. The enemy does not want the gospel to spread. There should be opposition to what you are doing. Now, the people are, are discouraged, so what do they say? We can't do this. There's so much garbage and That is in front of us. We can't possibly complete the wall. What they're saying is rubbish. Not the stuff there. The stuff that's rubbish is actually building material from when the walls fell down. It's not not a problem. It's actually useful stuff that's right there. They're just discouraged. And our adversary said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was... When the Jews who dwelt near them came, that they told us 10 times, "From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us." So not only are they coming at them violently, they're saying, "We're not going to stop. And we're going to come at every angle. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So what does Nehemiah do? He sets everybody up to work on the wall in front of their houses with their families. Now, this is good and smart on several levels. One, he's got several people to protect others. He has people taking ownership of their own protection. You're probably going to care about building a wall that protects you in front of your house. People are going to take the most ownership of that. And he says to them, the most important part of this, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. He points out, That God is bigger than your enemy. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. So he's made them warriors to fight the battle, to earn the victory, and he's reminded them that God is on their side. And they've gone back to work. They're working on the wall. And they're willing to work with one hand in construction and the other to defend because Nehemiah has motivated them to do so and reminded them how great God is. Every one of the builders has his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, "'The work is great and extensive, and we are separated from one another on the wall. "'Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us.' So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared." At the same time, I also said to the people, "Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night, and a working party by day, so neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. So they were so dedicated that they worked 24 /7 and they worked in shifts so that someone was always at watch, uh, and the only time they stopped working was to wash their clothes so that they could continue going and be clean as they were doing it.) <clears throat> This is another important point in that doing the work when you recognize how great God is doesn't mean that you don't put sweat in. Just because God is great and will fight on your behalf doesn't mean you don't have a part in the battle. Uh, And these people did, and they worked hard. Chapter 5. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons, and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money from the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Now, yet now our flesh is as flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them for other men have our lands and vineyards. So what they're describing is the people who have governed the land have overtaxed them and caused so much interest on them that they've had to sell part of their land, and it's gotten so bad they've even had to sell their children into slavery in order to not have nothing. And as much as they desire to redeem them and get them back from slavery, they can't. And their land has been taken from them. They have nothing left to sell. So Nehemiah's response is, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury or charging interest on your taxes from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Nehemiah is pointing out that this is against the law for Jews. Not necessarily against Persian law. This is against Levitical law. This is against the law of Moses. You're not supposed to create interest on fellow Jews. If you're handing out a loan, you can't put interest on it unless it's to a foreigner. But they're breaking the law. This is reminiscent of Jesus in the temple when he creates a whip of cords and he turns over tables and whips cords. Because what they were doing at the temple was telling people that the sacrifices they brought to the temple were blemished. And so they said, don't worry, we have approved animals for sacrifice for sale here at the temple that have already been approved by the priests. You can buy them, but they upcharge them to make extra money for the temple treasury. And that's what Jesus got upset about, the same thing that Nehemiah is getting upset about here. Also, the same thing that people were upset about by Jews who became tax collectors in the New Testament. This is why they were looked down on so much. So then I said, what are you doing? What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury or this extra interest on tax or loan. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's bold. Nehemiah stood up to them, told them what was going on, and the people were restored to what they had gotten. This is pretty amazing stuff. So then I called the priests. And I required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, uh, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So what you see is Nehemiah giving a visual aid for them. He shakes out his garments takes his tunic and shakes it up, and the dust hits the ground and the stuff hits the ground, he said, may that happen to you if you don't keep your promise in restoring the goods to the people. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people And took from them bread and wine. Besides forty shekels of silver, yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All of my servants were gathered there for work, and ate at my table were one hundred and fifty Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowl prepared for me, and once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because of the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So he's saying is, God, please remember me for how I treated my fellow Jews, because what Nehemiah did, as he took over and he was promoted, he became the governor of this area, is he didn't do what the others did. He didn't treat them the same way. He didn't cause extra taxation or cause interest. He didn't take anything from them. Also, he didn't take any extra from the king for his job. And while he was doing that and ruling over the people and being their governor, he didn't stop working on the wall. He kept doing everything he was meant to do. And so God, he says to God, can you please remember all that I did? Because that's pretty good stuff. And uh, I think that's okay. If you've, if you've done something worth note for God's service, the person to ask to remember that is him. If you ask everyone else to remember that on your behalf, that's prideful. If you say, look how good I am in front of the people, but if you're asking God to remember what you've done, that's different. Chapter six. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Gisham the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Gisham sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? So these same guys who are trying to cause all kinds of trouble the whole time, uh, now the walls are built and completed, and now they're trying to get uh, Nehemiah off by himself with them. And he says, No. I'm not going to waste time. My job is not to deal with you. My job is to finish the work of the wall. I'm not going to stop. But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. So five times, he said, no. (laughs) Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before. The fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, That you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come together, therefore, and consult, and let us consult together. So now we've seen two more tactics of the enemy. The first one is they try to get Nehemiah to compromise as though God's law and plan isn't rigid. So they try to get him to compromise to culture, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue the work that God has given me to do. And when that doesn't work, they spread rumors about Nehemiah, and they make up lies about him. And his response is this. I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. And he calls him out on his garbage. But they all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weak, weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you and i said should such a man as i flee and who is there such as i who would go into the temple to save his life i will not go in then i perceived that god had not sent him at all but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because tobiah and sanballat had hired him for this reason he was hired that i should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me so now we see another tactic the twisting of prophets, the twisting of God's word. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem hire a false prophet to speak falsely to Nehemiah to try to trick him into going into the temple so they could kill him. And he figures it out that this wasn't from God because his relationship with God was close enough to recognize and to sniff the lies out when it was Clearly not true, and so he doesn't fall for it. And he says, "My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of these of the prophets who would have made me afraid." So the wall was finished on the twenty-fifth day of Elul in fifty-two days, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nation around us saw these things. They were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and reported my words to him, "'Tobiah sent letters to frighten me.'" Chapter seven. "'Then it was when the wall was built "'that I had hung the doors, "'when the gatekeepers, the singers, "'and the Levites had been appointed, "'that I gave the charge of Jerusalem "'to my brother Hananiah, "'and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. "'For he was a faithful man, "'feared God more than many. "'And I said to them, "'Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened "'until the sun is hot, "'and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem one at his watch station another in front of his own house and so he's he's going back to his job his prior job back to the king and he's putting someone in charge and delegating because he knows who he can count on spiritually and he puts them in place and he gives them instruction of how to keep Jerusalem safe verse 4 now the city was large and spacious but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and had found written in it. And so the rest of this is just a list of those who had returned with Nehemiah the rest of chapter 7. And so it ends with this section of Nehemiah ends with the walls were built He's put someone else in charge. He's given them instruction of how to keep things safe. And he's keeping track of the genealogies to keep all of the records intact for the future. And this, by the way, though it's not the last book in the Old Testament, from a list of what we see in the Old Testament, this is the last book chronologically in the Old Testament. So when this book ends and Nehemiah's ministry is over, there's 400 years before the New Testament era starts. This ends even later than Malachi. So that's the first section of Nehemiah. And what we see is some pretty good leadership skills. The ability to delegate, the ability to motivate, the ability to see through the lies and corruption and not fall for the enemy's tactics. And I think maybe most importantly, is the ability to assess the damage before acting and to pray to get on God's page before you move forward. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this story. Uh, Thank you for this section in Nehemiah. Help us to learn the lessons from Nehemiah's spiritual leadership so that we can be better in our own ministries. God, we pray this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.